0: One of the biggest episodes we've ever done on Mike Force Podcast. I mean, it's really awesome. The last big one we did was with Jocko. Um, and that's expected, it's Jocko, right? 194,000, I think right now, we went to 200K three days ago on World War Three prep. And I say that, it's, it's a good title to get you in here, but I really mean that. I mean, if you're prepping for World War III, you're prepared for everything else. Like we talk about that a lot, right? Like don't plan for the optimal scenario, plan for the worst case scenario. Uh, I talked about you know, the details as lined out from my book, which is a manual for surviving worst case scenarios, but I don't want you to survive. You know, I, I want you to thrive. You know, when you, when you implement a lot of these things that we're gonna talk about today in part two of surviving World War III, it's more about being proactive In my mindset and protocols. And guys, let me tell you, like I've been in this industry a long time. My business has survived a long time where other businesses have failed. With that being said, I learn every single day what not to do and what to do better. And so I'm always adapting, I'm always evolving. And I am not the single sole source for information in the field of this expertise. I saw my good friend Mike Jones, is Grand Thumb, you might know him as Grand Thumb, is talking about doing survival escape and evasion training. Um, he literally is doing the content, but he's talking about actually doing the training. Go train with Mike. I mean, that's the guy you need to train with. I mean, Mike's expertise and his staff's expertise is literally how I was technically trained from the schoolhouse. I mean, the Army utilizes the expertise from the Air Force on all topics survival because, I mean, they have to specialize in it, especially given the circumstances where uh, planes are flying behind enemy lines and they get shot down and eject over enemy lines. Do as much as you can from as many people as you can. I'll plug them all. You know most of them, but just do that training. And don't just think about one focus of effort A lot of people wanna do like, I'm gonna be the gun guy, I'm gonna get the guns, I'm gonna get the ammo, I'm gonna do the tactical training. Guys, that is one aspect of training. Go to the workshop, go to the seminar. In January, and in February, and in March, and the rest of the year, I just convinced my CMO, which is pretty hard to do, the Chief Marketing Officer Rob, that I wanted to do a conference once a month. My first conference, not a CQB, not Shoot, Move, Communicate, not direct action, but ham radios. Yeah, radio communications, period. And so I'm gonna fly in all the nerds. I mean, it's gonna be like a nerds fest in the back of Phil Craft Survival because they're gonna be like geeking out and there's gonna be antennas in the parking lot because I want people to have a place to come. Um, we're gonna do a lot of content with the guys too, so you obviously can hit up our app, the Craft Survival app, wherever apps are found, Hulu, Roku, Apple, Samsung, all the things to get that information, but I want you to learn about things that you're not so, I don't know, maybe excited to learn about. I don't wake up excited to do ham radio training, but I know pertinent and important and the hierarchy of my needs and the necessity of my skill sets. I need to learn that stuff. So it's really important that we kind of start that conversation with that. You know, I'm not the end all be all solution. In fact, I'm very limited in my expertise. It's why I front run a lot of this stuff, which is big picture. Get down in the weeds. I I have the expert. I could divert you to the expert. You know, we're we're doing medical courses. Uh, We got a a whole bunch of medical courses coming up, some in North Carolina, some in Arizona, some here. Why? Because I prioritize med over anything else. I know it's not as sexy. Our best-selling products in retail and on PhilcraftSurvival.com happen to be first aid products, as they should be. If you're gonna be in a tactical situation, fighting for your life, you're going to need med, period. But when I think about kind of the staple necessity, even in combat, it was always first aid. Like, maybe I need a gun on this op, maybe I need a pistol on this op, but I always need first aid, every single op, right? Oh, the low is smaller, the bigger, whatever it may be, I'm going to need to stop the bleed and treat an injury. So that that's important to line out, uh, and I wanted to start with that conversation. When we look at part two, where we left off, was planning and situational awareness. I have these intangibles, these things that you really can't put your hands on, per se. I talked about Yusuf Badu and how he's a situational awareness expert. He's doing content for our app. He's done seminars with grass Survival and he's the guy because that's his specialty. You could tangibly introduce situation awareness in your life, it's not just a concept. And I talk about those tactics, so if you're listening to this, make sure you go and reference part one of our conversation because I do talk about that specifically and some tools and tactics. And that always evolves. There's always a tool, there's always a tactic that I could potentially add to my kit bag. Hey guys, if you know Phil Crafts Survival, if you know Mike Force, if you know me, then you likely know about Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company was founded by a buddy of mine, Josh Smith, master bladesmith for 30 years, one of the most experienced knife makers in the country. And he's had no compromise and all the integrity because he's making all of his knives. He's made that decision early on, by the way, to make all of his knives made in the USA, manufactured locally in his home state of Montana. Designed, tested, and built by hunters. Montana Knife Company is a hunting knife company first and foremost. Likely the sharpest knives in the market. I mean, you'd likely need a bleeding control kit if you're going to own a Montana knife, and that's a good problem to have. They sell out instantaneously. But for the first time in the history of his company, because he's gotten ahead, he has stock of your favorite knives, including the Blackfoot 2.0, the Speedgoat, or the Stonewall Skinner. And you could save. by using MF10. That's Mike Foxtrot 10. MF10 for 10% off your first order at MontanaKnifeCompany.com. When I talk about intangibles, I also mean like things that aren't specific to material capability. Like it's the things between your ears that you could utilize to get yourself out of harm's way. I want to first talk about what I call decision point. Now, I just did a personal security class, we call it personal defense. I have one November 18th with Amber, that's co-ed, and then I have one November 19th, I I think that's the advanced course. This training methodology isn't new. Scenario-based, sim-based training. Uh, What I've realized, even now, a lot of civilian instructional courses don't include hands-on or scenario-based training, especially implementing stress. I tell people it's very easy to stand on a flat range and impress yourself. It's very easy to shoot a hole in paper, create a larger hole, and even put your bullet through the hole and think you've accomplished something. Impressive, kudos. More importantly, outside of the technical expertise that you rep is taking that and implementing it underneath stress. Because certainly stress is that suppression, that dark cloud that weighs on you, that pisses on you. And it's like, yeah, sure you have the technical capability, but can you do that same technical task under stress? And the reality is after teaching personal defense, after seeing scenario-based training and sim based training in my military career, the answer is most can't. It has a lot to do with how you're conditioned and repped under stress. Sure, if you're choreographed and you're running through left and right, left and right, two rounds here, two rounds here, three rounds here, you're, you're practicing a choreographed movement. When I disrupt that, where you have to think instead of just execute, it becomes more difficult to manage, especially in compressed timelines. The worst case scenario usually includes an intensity and volume an elevation of stress and a a condensed timeline and duration, right? Short time, a lot of stress, that's worst case scenario. If you have all the time, yeah, then it's not that stressful, but not a lot of time in a short window to make a decision, man, worst case scenario. So the question is like, can you make the right decision? Can you execute the right executable task that statistically leave you on the right side of survival more in thriving than you can on the lack of decision or the wrong decision? I mean, if like, if I take this B-Hawk, Big shout out to Brad Holling. He's opening up his new distillery in North Carolina. Um, they're going to do a big grand opening. I expect you guys to be there and to support Brad Holling. Uh, we did a documentary with Black Rifle Coffee. He was the operator on the helicopter that took an RPG through his leg while he was trying to support Shootgarten and Gordon, his teammates on the ground during that uh, tragic uh, incident that took place October 3rd of 1993. So let's say this... Uh, I use my cell phone here, put it in the middle, and this black rifle, delicious espresso moco that gives me anal leakage. Um, we'll blur that out. I trust John to blur that out. All right, so if I if I have this, oh, let's change this around. This is the right answer. So this is where you come out on top. This is where you made the right decision at the right time, and you f- You've not only thrived, but you've survived. Like, you won. This is winning. Now, from your perspective, if you look at it on this side, this is not making the decision soon enough. This is getting your ass handed to you or potentially injured or killed, or even worse, your family member or somebody you love killed. This is the far right side of that being too aggressive, making the decision too rapidly, being too extreme. This is your ass in prison because you did the wrong thing legally. Maybe you even thought it was morally or ethically the right decision, but you did the wrong thing. On the scale, this scale, I see everybody fall in on this scale depending on where I do the course and the demographic that I'm teaching. This is the guy who shoots the guy three times in the back during the simulation scenario that was lunging at his wife. And I said, dude, you just killed that guy. Who here thinks he'll go to prison for murder? Everybody raises their hand. Why'd you do that? Well, I'm protecting my wife. Do you think that's the right answer? Yeah, I wouldn't let anybody touch my wife. But you do realize you killed somebody who was lunging at your wife and you would go to prison likely for the rest of your life because of it. Well, oh, well maybe, yeah, you can't kill somebody for say, saying, give me some food. Like literally, give me some money, give me some food. And then you murdered him. This is the person who in the scenario, the person walked up to the person they loved in the bed. They lifted the gun, put their trigger in the, fi- their figure trigger, in the uh, trigger well, started to depress the trigger and they didn't make a decision and their loved one died. And I'm like, well, why didn't you do anything? Well, I wanted to make sure definitively that I was, if I was going to take a life, then it was for the reason. So you waited until your loved one was killed? Well, what should I have done? Oh, so there's just all this like gray matter here where people don't realize that if they just weigh their decisions and decision point a little bit more, or in this case, less aggressive, and a little bit more decisive, they're bracketing the right decision in the middle. So when I talk about decision point, what I realized in this class that I teach, both with Amber when we're teaching co-ed or women's only, um, actually I believe November 18th is women's only, and then there's a co-ed version of it. When people show up and they're all the trained, They've crossed every T and dotted every I. They have all the guns, the EDC. You're like, oh, we're doing a scenario-based training. You got to take your EDC. Oh, my bad. I'll go to the, I'll go to the parking lot leaving the car. You know, I, I carry every day, you know. Like, hey, I get, I get it. Like, you're that guy. And then they're over here on the decision matrix. It's like, what is your criteria to, to use deadly force? I mean, that's a question from me to you. Like right now, just think about it. I mean, press pause and talk to your spouse about it. Talk to yourself about it, say it out loud. Like right now, if you had to take a life, what is the criteria? Most of the answers, I mean, this is like a classic USCCA answer, which I completely subscribe to. I like literally subscribe to, I got a USCCA membership and, and and it's a must. But it's like, if your answer is legal jargon, Uh, I would do everything necessary to protect myself and everybody I love if somebody was trying to seriously injure me or uh, potentially take my life. Whatever the legal jargon is you have in your head as your protocol, I get that. Yeah, have that script ready and prepared. But I'm asking the question, like, what would you literally do? Like, if I'm holding a gun and I'm standing here and I'm looking at you, and I'm standing in the threshold of your doorway and I look at you and you and you open the door. And there's a guy with a gun. What are you going to do? you going to shoot me? Well, yeah, I shoot. You, you got a gun. Uh, OK, what if I was just a guy who just ran over to the house and said, hey, there's a guy on the road hurting this lady. You want to come with me, support me or hey, I just got in a shootout. Can you call 911 for me? Oh, well, no. OK, so is it no or yes? Well, it's, it's no. Well, it's, there's more to the picture. What if I'm holding a gun and uh, it, it's in my holster and my hand's on the back strap? Well, you're a threat to me, I, am I a threat to you? What is your perception of threat? And the reality is I'm not, I'm not like, um, there's no right answer because it depends. And, and the reason I'm asking you is because I want you to work through it out loud for the first time likely on your own. And that's important. Because if the first time you're working through your criteria to take a life, you're already too late. Guys, when I was a staff sergeant in the US Army, on my first trip to Afghanistan, which is a nine-month rotation, a lot of bad things happened. Operation Red Wings, multiple helicopters went down. We lost a guy in our company. Uh, Actually, we lost a guy in our battalion in Alpha Company. Um, We had a whole bunch of shit happen. If you were to ask me prior to me taking a human life, where my anxiety level was, it was high. And here's what I mean. When you're a military guy and you're in combat arms or you're in special forces, you're Green Beret, and you're on your ODA, my ODA, my operational detachment, for the exception of a couple guys, had all been to war. They had done the invasion in Afghanistan. Their group was a very active group. And I was the guy they weren't sure about because I had the expert infantry badge, the airborne wings, the Ranger tab. I I was schooled. I had all the technical expertise, but I didn't have any of the validation. You can have the tab, but you're not vetted until you've been proven in a theater, in a gunfight, in combat for real. And so I had anxiety because I personally didn't know. Was I willing, was I able to take a human life? And when I got past that point and subsequently in my military journey, continued to get past that point further and further, I realized I didn't know a lot. And there was a big disparity between training and its methodologies, its modalities and its philosophy and its concepts versus the reality of war that very visceral and tangible and literal thing. So you could talk the talk, but are you willing and able and are you capable, culpable, morally and ethically and legally, able to make the right decision at the right time? The best ways in protocol, because this is naturally the question, is how do I get better at doing that? Well, you have to build yourself by getting exposed to challenges and thinking outside the box. And I don't just mean like the personal defense class with Phil Craft Survival. I mean like do things where you have to use critical thinking. I mean, it's Haley's whole thing, right? Thinkers before shooters. Like you gotta be a thinker to discriminate friend from foe, to make right decisions, to, to run into difficult, obstacles that you're gonna to have to navigate around. The first targets I hit in Iraq where you breach the gate, you go through the door and you're like, I'm gonna get my gunfight on. And then you walk into a courtyard with 23 people. 16 of them are males and then a couple females and a whole bunch of kids. And you're like, Shh, what do I do now? Well, get your flex cuffs out because you're gonna to need to flex cuff everybody and then work through the situation. Holy crap. You go into a room and you engage a bad guy and in a crib there's a baby, true story. Like what do you do? You gotta protect the baby. All of these things that we experience, we experience in real life circumstance. You can get better by doing things where you have to critically think and they don't have to be defense or tactical related. Certainly training and experience are the hinges are the references or the Rolodex that you're gonna tap into? But lastly, let me let me let you know a little blue chip of information here. You also have to understand how you're gonna react and respond off to of stress based on your triggers and trauma, based on the deepest and dark darkest manifestations in yourself that are gonna affect the outcome. I, I watched a video yesterday, last night. Um, on a shooting that took place where uh, the whole narrative of the story was the fact that a guy in Minnesota who got in a shootout with cops in a parking lot of a Walmart was released out on bail and then winded up getting in a gunfight in Colorado. And you had Utah State Troopers. Big shout out to Utah State Troopers. I have a lot of respect for them. But these particular police officers that were in this circumstance where there was a shooter on a main byway that was intersecting um, at a junction on a highway exit where he had stolen a sheriff's patrol car. I mean, the the dumbest thing was the actual fact that um, two officers that were just in civilians that were probably narc officers or whatever, whatever they were, they put the suspect inside the patrol car in the passenger side with no handcuffs on while they discovered a whole bunch of methamphetamines in his vehicle. And he just jumped in the driver's side and drove it away. High speed pursuit, get to this intersection of this exit and he's using the carbine to shoot back at the police officers. The police officers and their OODA loop are frozen nearly in place. One guy's using his duty pistol, which looked like a Glock 22, it's probably 40 cal. That had a Hollow Sun 509T uh, enclosed encapsulated, which we have in our, on our shelves at Phil uh, Craft Survival. And he is literally in a gunfight with his pistol from, looks like 100 yards. It's, it's pretty far, far away. And people who are civilians are driving by this intersection, not realizing what's going on, because so they see a sheriff car, and like, is somebody in, in trouble? And this guy runs up to the this, this civilian car and locks these civilians down and they try to bail and he winds up shooting one of them in the leg, almost kills them and shoots and stitches up the back of their vehicle. And it's like those officers are still stuck behind their car because they're frozen in place, because they're not critically thinking. Their duty and responsibility is to protect the public by all means necessary get in your patrol car, interdict the bad guys, smash them, run them over, do whatever it takes so you don't have more civilians in the in the line of fire while you're trying to wait for this guy out a hundred yards away and nobody knows what the hell's going on. Another civilian vehicle rolls by, thank God nobody gets rolled up and this guy gets 25 years. So when we lean our, on our experiences and our training, it limits our capabilities because at the crossroad, Sometimes we freeze and we don't know why. Why those officers froze, fear likely was a part of it, but why do they uh, freeze in fear? Why would a officer in in Tennessee, in Nashville, get his buddies and go into harm's way to dispatch an active shooter with no hesitation versus officers in Uvalde, for the exception of one officer who pushed the limits, freeze and allow all those children to be victims? I don't know. But certainly your triggers and trauma is a substantial um, thing to monitor. Because I've seen it happen, guys. I've seen it happen in the back of PhilCraft HQ, where people who have been through traumatic events, they freeze, they lock, they're hypo aroused, and they don't do nothing about it because something in them is activated when you have that stress starting to extract and pull that trauma, all that shit to the surface. Lastly, it coincides with this, let's talk about resilience. Mindset's the most important aspect of this. Um, I'll do a part three at a later time talking about the tangibles of EDC, mobility, and homestead. But what the hell is resilience? What, what is mindset? Everybody talks about it. Mindset's not gonna save your ass when you need a tool, technical capability. You can have all the mindset in the world, that's not gonna save you. When I think about mindset, I think about being resilient and it's the act of getting back on your feet, sometimes your knees, one step at a time, but getting up when you're knocked down. And the number one protocol in building resilience that I recommend, which remember, it's like, let's just take a step back and go, how the hell does this relate to preparedness, Mike? It has everything to relate to preparedness. Because if you're not resilient as an individual, because you show up to my course with $3,000 worth of gear and multicam, but you can't do calisthenics, you can't pick your spouse up and put them on your back and save her life, then you're weak. You're not prepared. You could have a false sense of security. You could blow smoke up your ass. You could lie to yourself. All your friends and family could lie to yourself. But if you're with me, I'll tell you because I care about you. I want you to succeed. I'm gonna tell you the truth. Just like I expect the people around me to tell the truth. Mike, you're getting kind of fat, man, what's going on? You're right, man, I've just been going through a difficult time, but it's no excuse. I'm gonna get back on my feet, become more resilient. I want you to become more resilient because that is the core foundation of being prepared. If you're not, don't talk to me about your ham radio, you you nerd, don't talk to me about your abs, you fitness guru. If you're not resilient in your mindset, if you're not being assessed, if you're not being tested and exposed, number one, exposed, then you're not gonna be more resilient. I mean, resilient was something that we just called life hundred years ago because we just had to do what we did. We had to like go out into the world and like find our food. We had to set a plan and establish, oh, we're gonna to have to fight for our life here. And if we don't, we'll just die. That was resilience that was just part of her life that's now complacent. How much effort do we really put out in the world? I love these people are like, I work my ass off. Do you really work your ass off? I mean, because you're telling me you work your ass off. My mom, who came to this country not speaking English, who started her own business 43 years later, is just retiring from her own business where she worked seven days a week for 43 years. She knows hard work. You sat at a computer desk and punched the key bad for, for seven, eight hours and you think you've, you've put out a lot of effort. Is that true? Let's take a step back. One, the mindset is you need to be able to have a, have a mindset shift that you earned it. When I sleep, if I don't earn it, I don't feel like I'm gonna get a good night's rest and I don't, because I wanna earn it. That shower, that good meal, it feels so damn good to earn it. Rewilding, my last class is in November for rewilding. The number one thing that a lot of people say after rewilding is like, man, I feel like everything feels a little bit different. That food tastes a little better. That sleep feels just a little bit more sound. That shower running down my back feels a little bit warmer and more comfortable because you earned it because we're so complacent, we're so comfortable. I mean, I'm at 69 degrees because I love it cool. And I walk in discomfort, the 10 feet to my my vehicle, when I get in it, I'll get it dialed in. In fact, I might even start it from the from the building I'm in or the house that I'm in and get it warmed up toasty because I don't want to be uncomfortable. You need to expose yourself to build resilience now. It needs to be part of a deliberate process. We, bu- we put in cold plunge, hot sun, it's coming here in the back of Philcraft HU. To think in a world that we'd be talking about, yeah, you know, the best thing that I've ever done in my life is putting myself in a, tank of cold water with ice. That's changed my life. It's like, what? Like, what? That, that's changed your life? Like in Scandinavia, that's like 101. That's what they do. But as protocols, as we said it, we now have to deliberately and intentionally put these things in our lives and our patterns of habit, because we're so comfortable. The number one thing you could do is expose yourself to new challenges to make your weak body strong, and your weak mind stronger and more resilient. I can't tell you how to do it because that's, that's your journey to each their own. Rewilding, it's a process and a course that I established. It's the reason I did it because I figured as a protocol, if you're not gonna do it for yourself, I'll do it for you and do it programmed. So you walk away with technical skill sets with primitive skill sets and then walk away understanding the importance of rewilding, of the primal reset. The primal reset is so important, guys. Gotta get off your phones, you gotta get off technology, you gotta get out of the complacency and get a little bit uncomfortable to be more resilient and comfortable when shit hits the fan. Because that's what we're doing, like establishing a new baseline. If I could operate in comfort, because I fast rope on top of the target, I free fall into the enemy area, and I'm operating at baseline normal, then man, I'm conditioned for stress. I am more resilient. I think about all the experience in the military that I went to, it was all about building more resilience in soldiers. Ranger school, yeah, it sucked, but it was the exposure, long-term exposure of two months in simulated combat that built resilience, which is really what I took away from it. The tab is cool, but I, I took away from the resilience exposure that really made me better as a human being. Lastly, like I said and described in the conversation on planning, all of this starts with a conversation. And I talked about the conversation that happens with your spouse when coming up and identifying your deficiencies in preparedness. But most importantly, the conversation I want you to have is with yourself. If you're fat, don't be fat anymore. It doesn't start on the first of the new year. It doesn't start on Monday, it starts now. If you're not prepared because you don't have the skill sets, start a lifestyle of it. Download our app. It's free to just download the app and, and start your journey. Dude, I have more videos on preparedness on our YouTube channel, which just passed a million subs, on Philcraft Survival, on Mike Glover Actual. That is completely free to you. It's the value proposition of me offering that to you. If you wanna go further in the weeds, yeah, I got the paid version of that, but there's no excuse, meaning because there's plenty of opportunity to get more prepared. You just gotta be willing to have the conversation with yourself. Or, like I described in part one, ego and arrogance is gonna allow you to fail because you believe you got your shit together. You don't. I don't. I have to constantly stay on top of this stuff because I don't want to be complacent. My fanny pack, which is on the floor at my feet, I keep it within arm's reach everywhere I go. And yeah, it's very much more convenient to leave it in my car so I don't have to drag it around but that Craft Survival fanny with that 365X macro, if somebody comes in this building and they wanna put me in harm's way or somebody, somebody who works for me or one of my loved ones, I got a solution. More so it's the training, the resilience, and everything I went through that I touched that gun, I'm willing to go to work to sacrifice it all. Yeah, you might have the will and the motivation, but if you don't have the technical capability, you have nothing. It's a hollow promise to yourself have the conversation and keep it real. Guys, Hillcraft Survival as an app, hillcraftsurvival.com, all the things that we do. I appreciate you guys. Big shout out to Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring this. If it wasn't for Black Rifle, we wouldn't be able to have um, these segments of these podcasts because you guys support us, Mike Force 20, 20% off all your subs at Black Rifle Coffee Coffee Club. The link's down below. I appreciate you. Till next time, we'll do a part three later, which is EDC the tangibles, EDC, Mobility, and Homestead, but we're headed for prepared for Mike Glover Actual to LA to go around LA, show you the the tragic circumstances that has unfolded and progressed into the worst case scenario for a lot of the country. And also I'll do some stuff for Patreon and I'll do some stuff for uh, Mike Force talking to Jack Osborne about how the shit has fell apart. Till next time, guys. Peace.